Welcome to the Bonhoeffer Podcast, a podcast about the life, theology, and practice of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I am your host, Corey Tuttle. For this episode of the podcast, I had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Stephen Haynes. Dr. Haynes is the author of several books about Bonhoeffer and specializes in Bonhoeffer's reception. His latest book, The Battle for Bonhoeffer, Debating Discipleship in the Age of Trump, covers the reception of Bonhoeffer's life and theology in the States. This was a fascinating conversation. I'm really thankful for Dr. Haynes. He was very generous with his time, and I hope that you learn as much as I did through this conversation. So without further ado, here it is. My guest today is Dr. Stephen Haynes. Dr. Haynes is the Albert Bruce Curry Professor of Religious Studies at Rhodes College and the author of several books about Bonhoeffer, including his latest book, The Battle for Bonhoeffer, Debating Discipleship in the Age of Trump. Dr. Haynes, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Corey. It's good to be with you. Yeah, I've, uh, I have finished reading Bonhoeffer for Armchair Theologians, which is one of your books about mm-hmm. two months ago. And that was right before I was going to launch this podcast. And I was thinking, it's my favorite book about Bonhoeffer that I've read. So you were one of the top people on the list for people that I'd like to get on here. So thank you so much. Yes, um, absolutely. What I was hoping that we could do is I'll probably just lay it out the um, itinerary, I guess. Okay. I'd like to get to know you a little bit, kind of your story around Bonhoeffer, and then maybe jump into uh, your studying of Bonhoeffer and your your latest book. And we'll probably spend the bulk of the time in your latest book. Okay. Um, just finished reading it, but uh, just to get to know you, um, how did you become interested in Bonhoeffer? Yeah, so it goes back to the 1970s. I was in college, um, and I was involved in the training program of an evangelical uh, ministry, and it was required for all members of this leadership team that we read a book called The Cost of Discipleship. We weren't given any hints about how to understand it or its author, but I remember reading it and thinking, wow, this is this is intense. This is impressive, and didn't really know a lot about the the author or the historical context. But later, I was in graduate school a few years later, and I discovered Bonhoeffer through the letters and papers from prison. And so I saw a whole other sort of dimension of his um, of his life and of his thought. <clears throat> and then, so this is when I actually had already started at Rhodes. This was in the early 90s. I was teaching a class on the Holocaust, and I was looking at the church struggle and how to teach sort of Christian um, involvement with with Nazism and Christian responses to Nazism. I started to look at Bonhoeffer as kind of a test case. <clears throat> and um, I was I did a paper at the uh, meeting of the International Bonhoeffer Society um, in 1995 about Bonhoeffer and anti-Judaism. And I won't say that it was well received. Um, people were very gracious and uh, in, in including me in their circle of conversation, but it also um, created some some stir and and I just sort of got absorbed into the Bonhoeffer Society after that point because um, I was impressed by the kind of work people were doing and their um, some of the people were you know had known Bonhoeffer and known Bonhoeffer's relatives and others were were much younger and it was it was impressive to me that it was still. At that time, I was in my 30s, so it was still much more uh, very, um, very vibrant community, uh, research community, scholarly community, and there were a lot of people interested in Bonhoeffer um, and a lot of different aspects of his work. And so, ever since then, uh, I've really been interested in Bonhoeffer, and I, I 
you know, I wrote a book called The Bonhoeffer Legacy, which is about Bonhoeffer's relationship to Jewish Christian relations. And then I wrote a book called The Bonhoeffer Phenomenon, which actually came before that, that, that was trying to chart Bonhoeffer's reception, which is very interesting and unique, I think. And then, and then this most recent book, I didn't want to write. I was sort of felt like I was forced into it by the 2016 election. And, and in particular, by the way, people were using Bonhoeffer and invoking Bonhoeffer on sort of both sides of the political divide. And so um, I'd say that, you know, although my introduction to Bonhoeffer you know, happened in stages over several years, what I'm really interested in, in now more than anything is his reception and the way he functions in American culture in particular. That's great. Yeah, that, make, that makes total sense. I wanted to ask you, so for our first episode, we had Dr. St Stephen Besner, mm -hmm. and he went through Bonhoeffer's theological hermeneutics. Um, mm -hmm. So being the first episode, it probably would have made sense to have sort of a biography, a little bit more about Bonhoeffer's life. Um, yeah. But I specifically wanted to save it for someone who has written a biography on Bonhoeffer, yeah. um, which which I, I believe you did for the first half of um Bonhoeffer for Armchair Theologian. I did, and Lori Brandt Hale wrote basically wrote the second half, which was on his theology. Yeah, awesome. Okay, so for people who are not familiar with Bonhoeffer, who are just checking out this podcast, can you give maybe like a the ten thousand foot uh, <laughs> highlights of his life? Kind of, kind of, who is he, and and that way we can kind of take that into his reception and why that's important. Yeah, I'll I'll try to do that on the fly. Uh, yeah. I'll just start talking and see how that goes. Um, <laughs> So he's born in 1906. Um, he's born into a, a wealthy uh, family that is, you know, firmly upper middle class. His father's a noted psychiatrist. His mother comes from uh, a family of scholars and um, um, you know people who had were, were of some note in Germany. And so, and he's the eighth, or he's he's the sixth of eight children. And so mm -hmm. he's got three older brothers in particular who are all very impressive in their own way and. So the, there's a sort of competition to be successful, but also to find your own area of, of flourishing. And so he ends up um, doing that by claiming he wants to be a theologian, which is um, not a natural choice for people in his family. His brothers had been jurists and um, uh, linguists, and uh, one was a physicist. Um, but there is this history of, in his mother's family, of of theologians and pastors and so forth. So it's, he comes by it honestly, you could say. Uh, he's very much uh, sees theology as a, as a scholarly endeavor, as something that he is interested in intellectually and he's very, very good at it. And he ends up going off to college and he finishes his, decides to study, you know, further in theology and gets his PhD when he's 21, which by itself is pretty impressive and gives yeah. us a sense of his sort of intellectual um, prodigy. And um, he's influenced by a couple of people who represent almost the poles of theological debate at the time, Adolf von Harnack and Karl Barth. So Harnack represents sort of the old 19th century Protestant liberalism and Barth represents new orthodoxy and post-World War I um, sort of reactions to the old guard. And, and Bonhoeffer sort of, um, in an in a interesting way, embodies or inculcates both of these, um, uh, internalizes both of these. And so he's, he's a very, um, he's a very interesting and surprising theologian. He, a lot of the stuff he writes even early on 
is still read with a lot of profit by people and people still write dissertations about his dissertation and it's pretty remarkable. Hmm. So he finishes his academic training and he's in his early 20s. He's not old enough to be ordained to the ministry and he's not ready to sort of settle down into a teaching job. So he, he has a couple of experiences that take him overseas. One is to Barcelona to be a, an assistant pastor at a German speaking congregation. And, um, you know, Bonhoeffer's, just about everything he ever wrote, including letters is, is published in the Dietrich Bonhoeffer works. And so it's one, if one's interested, one can look at, you know, these different phases of his life and see what he was experiencing. But so he does that for a year in Barcelona, and then he comes back to Germany, and he's still not ready to settle down. He ends up going to New York for the 1930-31 academic year and um, at Union Theological Seminary in New York. And among the experiences he has that are important are, one, he meets a French student named Jean Lasserre, who's a pacifist. And the fact that they're French and German, you know, creates some problems in their relationship or some obstacles, but also the fact that Lasserre is a pacifist is an interesting sort of provocation for Bonhoeffer. So um, Lasserre has a big influence on him. And the other thing is his um, his visits to Harlem, to Abyssinian Baptist Church and his involvement there and his interest in the Harlem Renaissance. And this, as, as people have, have, have commented on, particularly lately, I mean, this is really a formative experience for him and sort of shapes the way he will um, understand Nazism when he goes back to Germany. So he does go back in 31 and um, begins a sort of dual vocation in the church and the academy and he um so he has a church job basically one of his duties is teaching a confirmation class to working class kids who aren't that interested in confirmation and he's also a he works at the university of berlin and kind of a junior very junior um professorship and then um the nazis come to power um hitler is uh, appointed to the office of chancellor in January of 33. And Bonhoeffer, I think in part because of the experiences he had overseas, I think in part because of his family, um, he immediately senses that Hitler is a disaster for Germany and that he needs to be opposed. And while a lot of his friends and um, people he respected were taking a sort of wait and see attitude about Hitler, he realizes that this is something that he and other Christians should stand up for. And so, there's a radio address that he makes very soon after Hitler's accession to power that's um, where he talks about the dangers of this Fuhrer principle, this, this leadership principle. Um, and his career under Nazism is very complicated. And I'll just mention a couple of highlights. I mean, I think the biggest one is that in 1939, he decides to leave the country because he is a conscientious objector and he believes that uh, he knows a war is coming and he doesn't believe he can serve under Hitler. And so he gets out of the country, goes to England first and then to America. And his American friends have set up a really nice situation for him where, where he'll lecture at schools and, um, you know, deal with, uh, you know, assist other German emigres. And then he just has this existential crisis where he realizes he's made a mistake. He needs to go back. He needs to be with his the people he's mentored. He needs to be um, with his countrymen. And so he goes back. And very soon after, he gets involved in the resistance um, against Hitler through his uh, some family members, particularly his brother-in-law, Hans von Nanyani. And his role in the resistance is, is very interesting. Uh, he does some, some things that are very dangerous. For instance, he travels to Sweden um, to meet Bishop Bell, who's an uh, Anglican bishop. 
and he carries with him, you know, names of the resistors and so forth, and, and he's making contact with the allies. And so he's doing some very treasonous things. What really gets him in trouble ultimately is his role uh, as a conspirator or, or in the group of conspirators that, that pulled off the July 20th, 1944 bombing, which was unsuccessful in the sense that it didn't kill Hitler, but it, it certainly got his attention and everybody who was associated ultimately with that with that plot was was murdered, uh, as he was in, in April 1945. So after the war, uh, you know, it takes a while for Bonhoeffer's reputation to sort of um, uh, distill. And initially in the 50s, it's really about his letters and papers from prison, the things that he wrote and thought, you know, while he was incarcerated by the Nazis. And then eventually people discover that, that a lot of his texts are really interesting and have a lot of, uh, can be studied very fruitfully. And then I think the fact, ultimately I think the thing that makes him, the fact that we're, we're talking about him today rather than Karl Barth or Paul Tillich or somebody like that is that his life was so interesting and he was so willing to put his theology into, into practice and and live a life that reflected his his um, convictions that's very impressive to people so there, there is the fact that he opposed hitler and was involved in conspiracy and all that and that's very interesting but there are, there's also a sense in which he um he represents something to which we all aspire which is this sort of um integrity between you know, life and thought. And I think the other thing that's, that's made him uniquely um, uh, interesting to Americans is that he can be interpreted in a lot of way, ways. He can be embraced from a lot of perspectives. So there's the evangelical Bonhoeffer, um, there's the liberal liberation theology Bonhoeffer, there's the, you know, post-Holocaust Bonhoeffer, there's the, the sort of Bonhoeffer that's not really sectarian, that's, that's more, um, you know, sort of post-Christian. And to some extent, all these Bonhoeffers are invented, but they're also all based to some extent in his in his thought and in his life. Yeah, and you jump right into that in your new book, Battle for Bonhoeffer. Um, I it, it's so thorough. I, it's such a good job done. I was talking to my wife about it, and she was asking me how the book was, and I was thinking, I told her, I think he probably had a notification and read every single tweet blog yes. post book that ever mentioned the word Bonhoeffer probably for yeah. the past five years. <laughs> well, you, you, you're kind of on to my secret. So at some point, um, you know, in the past, I, I figured out you could get a Google alert. Hmm. And so literally every time Bonhoeffer's mentioned anywhere online, um, you know, I, I get an alert. And so every morning, one of the first things I do is look at my Bonhoeffer alerts. And most of them are not very interesting, but some of them are really interesting. And over time you start to see these patterns and, um, and that was really helpful in, in trying to trace uh, Bonhoeffer's American reception since since 9-11, which is sort of the start for the for the book. Uh, something I really appreciated was you cover both the the left and the right and their interpretation of Bonhoeffer. And uh, it seems to be kind of the, the theme that I keep coming across in the book is that either side is trying to take the parts of Bonhoeffer that they like disregard yeah. the parts that they don't like yeah. and kind of use them as uh, their bannermen and then paint the, whoever the leadership is on the other side of the yeah. political aisle as Hitler. Yeah. Well, what I found when I was working on this book, and by the way, the book came out of this article that I wrote in the Huffington Post right after the election. And 
um, it, it was not intended to be anything other than an article in the Huffington Post. And then I had a couple people who really were struck by it and said, you know, would you expand this into a book? And I said, no, I have other things to do. And then hmm. finally, um, Trevor Thompson at Erdman's Press convinced me, and, and I, I'm glad he did because it was a good exercise. But um, I, I, I wanted, I had to find a starting point. You know, at what point was it that we started thinking of our leaders in America as Nazis? And 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 because that was an important question because Boniface sort of fits into that. Which if you have a Nazi leader, you've got to have an anti-Nazi resistor, mm -hmm. and so. I started back with 9/11 and George Bush, and even though I lived through that period, I didn't I didn't have a, a, a strong memory of Bush being portrayed and as a tyrant or as a Nazi. But it, it was definitely he definitely was, and Bonifer was sort of invoked in that discussion. And then I was really surprised, I guess, to to learn to what extent Obama had been portrayed that way, uh, beginning really right after his his election, 2009. Um, and there's this sort of backlash by evangelical Christians who are um, who see real problems with what Obama represents, but who see Bonhoeffer and the Confessing Church and um, as sort of the, the solution. So then um, in the run-up to the 2016 election, um, I, I was surprised, as a lot of us were, that evangelicals were supporting Trump, but I was even more surprised that they were doing so while invoking people like Bonhoeffer, which seemed crazy to me, to be honest. Um, and so as I began to look at it, I realized the important role that Eric Metaxas plays in all this. And I talk about this in the book, and I've got a whole chapter on him. I think and his book came out in 2010. And he presents Bonhoeffer as somebody who is, if not an evangelical himself, very comfortable for evangelicals, very familiar. And so, um, by the time, as an, as an example of the influence of Metaxas's book, by 2015, when the, there's this, this firestorm of, of criticism against the Obergefell decision of the Supreme Court on same-sex marriage, people come out and start to proclaim a Bonhoeffer moment without ever saying what that is. And I think it's they could do that largely because of Metaxas's influence, that he had he had created this image of Bonhoeffer as a as an arch conservative, as somebody who was um, fitted very well to you know being a conservative culture warrior. So when people said Bonhoeffer moment in 2015, it made perfect sense what they were talking about. And then of course in 2016, um, the taxes comes out big for Trump. Um, I guess that wasn't completely surprising given some other things he had written and said, but what really struck me and kind of a turning point in my understanding of, of him and his influence was in October of 2016, after the Access Hollywood tape came out and, you know, there was that sort of awful banter and people were, a lot of people I think thought Trump, you know, was, would, would be dead in the water, particularly with Christians. And but Texas wasn't the only one who defended him, but he did so in a very prominent way in the Wall Street Journal. And he basically said, you know, not only can Christians still vote for Trump, they must vote for Trump. And he, and he invoked Bonhoeffer in the process in, in a strange way saying basically, you know, Bonhoeffer did things we didn't like as well. Really in some ways, you know, making a parallel between Bonhoeffer and Trump. And as I point out in the book, you know, I'm a pretty um, 
wide tent guy. And uh, in the International Bonhoeffer Society, we often discuss, you know, to what extent do we want to reach out to popularizers? And I was one of the guys who, people who thought, we need to bring Metaxas into our discussions. We need to sort of honor the fact that he's reached a lot of people we don't reach. And uh, we made some attempts at that that were unsuccessful. But at this point, I just realized that the, it was more important for me personally to sort of um, draw a line and say that this sort of interpretation of Bonhoeffer was, uh, was inauthentic, it was dangerous, and it had to be opposed by people who knew something about the man and about his, his legacy. And so, um, as you've read the book, it's pretty clear sort of not only that I disagree with Metaxas and that I think that his interpretation is wrong, but that he's really done a lot of damage um, in, in a way dragging Bonhoeffer onto Trump's side of the line, if that makes sense. So because mm -hmm. he's so, because he's quote, a Bonhoeffer scholar and because he's, he's so much in Trump's camp, it sort of gives people this impression that, that Bonhoeffer would also be a Trumpian, which is kind of a, something that has to be addressed, obviously. Yeah, it, it's really interesting to think about the influence of uh, that biography that he wrote. I came across it in 2010 when it came out. Um, I was a fairly new Christian. Um, was an, I basically became a Christian right out of high school and then went straight to Bible college almost. And I was at Barnes & Noble. I was walking through and, you know, I'm, I'm new to this thing, didn't know really what to think. Yeah. And just saw a biography that said pastor, spy, right? <laughs> I mean, the full title is pastor, martyr, prophet, spy, but yeah. I saw pastor, spy, world war II against Hitler. And I was like, yeah. this sounds so interesting. Yeah. Um, and I found that, you know, I, I became a Christian in a very conservative, very conservative church, went to a very conservative undergrad. Uh, and I found myself reading this book and thinking, Oh man, this guy agrees with everything that I'm learning. Yeah, <laughs> this yeah. is exactly like all these, uh, yeah, like my, all my lectures, all my the sermons on Sunday, all the political understandings yeah. of things. It agrees with all of it, um, and I I kind of have um, him to thank for even this podcast. I mean, yeah, I I became interested in Bonhoeffer through that. I read that mm -hmm. before I read any of his works. Yeah, um, and so I jumped into his works and started realizing, oh there's some, this seems to have been left out of, yeah. uh, you know, starting ethics and things like that. Yeah, you're yeah. like, I don't see too much yeah. of this in, uh, in his biography, but it's just so interesting. And, you know, I have friends that I like talk to now. I'm, I'm in a, uh, like a liberal arts college now doing my master's and mm -hmm. uh, my mentor at school is an expert in Karl Barth. So I'm learning a lot about Barth, reading yeah. Bonhoeffer, completely different from my undergrad. Right. And I'm having these conversations and I'm having conversations with people that I went to school with um, in my undergrad and, and conservative friends. And they're like, do you still want to study this guy? I mean, yeah. you it made sense that you were in. But but now that you're learning that maybe um, I think you mentioned that Tim Challies wrote um, in your book that wrote that like uh, evangelicals would rather just have someone they agree with and yeah. real people. <laughs> yeah, I would say you were the ideal reader for Metaxas' Bonhoeffer biography, really, right? Because you were somebody who were predisposed to to um, be attracted to Bonhoeffer, but also to to like him precisely because he was so much like you you were. They spoke the language that you spoke, and I think, you know, my parents read, you know, they they probably hadn't read my own Bonhoeffer books very carefully, but they really enjoyed Metaxas's book, and I even invited me to a book club that they were in that 
had like 50 people where everybody was reading Metaxas. So you have to give Metaxas credit for reaching an audience that probably you know, doesn't have a lot of inherent interest in continental theologians, but, um, but he made him really relevant. And I think, you know, coming at that moment, right in the beginning of the Obama era, it also, he was able to sort of shape package Bonhoeffer in a way that, that touched a lot of people's fears and a lot of people's aspirations. And I, I talk about in the book, my, my mom, I was visiting my parents and my mom, you know, yells from the bedroom, Steve, there's a Bonhoeffer guy on Huckabee. <laughs> and I was like, what? So, you know, because none of the Bonhoeffer guys I knew would, would go on Huckabee, but what Metaxas was able to do more in his, you know, book tour than in the book itself was really position Bonhoeffer as, as somebody who was friendly to conservatives, but also, also create this impression that everything that had been written about Bonhoeffer before him was sort of an, an, uh, an attempt, represented an attempt to hijack Bonhoeffer's legacy to um, to interpret him, to misinterpret him in a particular way that was friendly to liberals. And so it played into this whole sort of left-right, you know, fake news, conspiracy, uh, liberal bias, this, this whole sort of shtick that, um, that we're so familiar with now. Um, you know, he really was able to convince people that anything they'd ever heard about Bonhoeffer before him was wrong. And it's interesting because evangelicals had been interested in Bonhoeffer since the 70s, but there'd always been this sort of careful recognition that, that while there were things about Bonhoeffer that seemed familiar and, and were probably useful, there were also things about him that were, were foreign and that were, were you know, perhaps a little dangerous. And uh, so Metaxas comes in and seems to say, you don't have to worry about that anymore interpret him the way I'm interpreting him, and it all fits perfectly into what you already believe. Uh, I have a question about the 60s and 70s interpretation of Bonhoeffer. Um, you you wrote about that there was the this death of God movement and yeah. Christian atheism, and that, yeah. that was kind of co-opting Bonhoeffer and, uh, and applying him in incorrect ways. Yeah. Uh, I'm not familiar with that. Can you yeah. explain just a little bit what the death of God or Christian atheism movement is? Well, it's a really interesting movement because it was really... Uh, popular, but it was also very short-lived. It, it comes in the, say, like 1962 to 1966, something like that. And um, it is an attempt to, it, sometimes these people are described as secularizing theologians, uh, people like Paul Van Buren and Gabriel Vahanian and um, Thomas Altizer, William Hamilton. Uh, they're people who want to relate Christian theology to the reality that, that, that they noticed emerging, which was secular society. And so they thought that a, a Christianity that was steeped in supernaturalism and miracles and things like this was really a stumbling block to so-called modern man. And so they wanted to sort of rethink it with the secular world in mind. And, and Bonhoeffer, in his letters and papers from prison, writes some things that, that seem to be really um, pointing in the same direction. And so they really they really um, uh, jump on that to that um, those those passages and their interpretation of those passages and um, this was a very experimental thing for Bonhoeffer something he never imagined uh, in, in the form in which he wrote it you know being published but um, you know even at the time those who knew Bonhoeffer and were familiar with his his whole theological corpus realized these people were were um, misrepresenting Bonhoeffer and, and turning him into something that he wasn't. But it was difficult to really 
um, demonstrate that. And um, ultimately, I think Bonhoeffer scholars see the death of God movement and its use of Bonhoeffer as a sort of misstep, sort of attempt to use Bonhoeffer that um, didn't really understand Bonhoeffer's own deepest ideals. I hope that eventually people will, will say the same thing about, you know, Metaxas's version of Bonhoeffer. I think there are a lot of, I hadn't thought about it until just now, but there are a lot of similarities. Mm -hmm. uh, an attempt to sort of hijack Bonhoeffer to um, co-opt Bonhoeffer for a particular uh, theological project. Um, so yeah, that's the, the death of God movement. It, it was sort of eclipsed pretty quickly because you had the sort of emerging feminist and liberation theologies come up in the in the late 60s and it was um and so a, a movement dominated by white men uh as the death of god movement was suddenly seemed very passe even though it was radical in a way mm -hmm. yeah it was really interesting that was like the main question uh, i tried to write questions as i was you know going through the book mm -hmm. and thinking do i understand what he's talking about here and that was the one thing i was like i have no idea and i figured yeah. i could google this but i'll wait to ask him yeah um the probably the most the most interesting, I guess, thing about the book that I got was that the silence quote is not Bonhoeffer. No, it's fascinating. And so I, you know, since the book came out in uh, early 2018, I've been keeping track of things that, you know, would have gone in the book if it were possible. And, you know, a lot of them are, are just exactly that use of the silence quote by all sorts of people um across the political spectrum to say mm -hmm. antithetical things all concluding in as bonhoeffer said silence in the face of evil is is evil itself right mm -hmm. and it's a really cool quote and it it probably something bonhoeffer could have said it's not like it's it, it violates you know his spirit but but it's been made really clear um by people who have researched this that it's it's not to be found in bonhoeffer's corpus in fact I mentioned that there's a blogger who sort of did the groundwork to figure out where it came from. And it's some book from the seventies that from a, somebody I'd never heard of. Hmm. Um, but this sort of, I talk about this sort of, um, it's, it's almost, it, it's a populist Bonhoeffer. It's almost an intellectual populism, you know, whether or not what you're saying is true is less important than, you know, whether it's serviceable or fits your agenda somehow. Mm -hmm. um, and I just find that really disturbing and, and interesting, you know, probably primarily, but also disturbing. Um, maybe it's, we've gotten to the point where people who use that quote are just as likely to use it on the left and the right. So maybe they cancel each other out in a way. I don't know. It was funny because I read that section of the book. Um, and then the next day I was on Twitter and a Bonhoeffer account yeah. posted a picture of Bonhoeffer with the quote, silence in the face of evil is evil itself. Yeah. Not to act is to act, not to speak is to speak. And it's just like, oh, it's everywhere. And then, but the funny thing is, is that, you know, I'm, I'm doing this Bonhoeffer podcast. Um, when I'm planning it before I even start, I'm thinking, how am I going to start this thing off? Maybe I should start out with like a quote from Bonhoeffer <laughs> and just read out a quote. And yeah. that one was on the board as something I should do. And then yeah. I was like, I ended up deciding like, no, I'd rather just talk to people and, and get to know them and not do the whole production. But um, yeah. I don't know how you would actually, you know, determine such things. But if you could, I'll, I'll bet that bon that quote is probably the most popular quote by Bonhoeffer. Oh, I bet. Yeah, easily. That or something about coffee mugs and yeah. And so that says something, right? That that our and maybe it's a comment on social media and the internet that it's just 
things take on a certain momentum and it's tough to stop them and and you know sort of research about whether things are true or not just doesn't seem to have much of a place <laughs> yeah uh you you close the book with a little um postscript to it's a letter open letter to not that even, little oh yeah <laughs> it's pretty long yeah. uh, you you write an open letter to um, conservative evangelicals who who did support Trump or are still supporting Trump. Yeah, can we can we talk about that for a second? Yeah. I, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was. I, I know several people that that, that letter is too, yeah. um, but I thought it was really uh, balanced and poignant, and but still respectful and empathetic mm -hmm. of other people's positions. Um, what's your reception of of that? Have have you received any feedback on that? Yeah, people, um, you know, I have people I know who've read the book say, I'd like to give this book to my friend or my uncle or my cousin or my brother who's a Trump supporter, but I don't know that they'll read it, you know, so, yeah. so I don't know. Um, but what I tried to do in the letter is really to, to be as personal as I could because my own background is in the evangelical tradition. I tell the story of, you know, growing up in a church in, um, in Miami where, President Nixon would visit and he got close to some of our members and our pastor got very close to him. And um, in retrospect, uh, you know, we felt manipulated and co-opted. And But I was very impressed by, by the pastor who was really young at the time, John Huffman is his name, because when it came out that Nixon wasn't what he had wanted to be seen as, and he, he wasn't, you know, acting in a, in a way that Christians could, you know, countenance. Um, Huffman just said, you know, he basically repudiated him uh, to, to the media, to Time and Newsweek and the New York Times and said, you know, you can't be a Christian and act that way. And I just was very, I, I didn't realize until I really started to reflect on my own life, what an impact that it had on me hmm. and how it really um, set me up to, uh, really be careful about assuming uh, that, you know, politicians who wanted my vote and, and who um, sought my vote on a religious basis, you know, whether they could be trusted. And I just, I see a lot of the same thing happening now. I see people, you know, I see Christians who have supported Trump heading for the kind of disappointment and, and sort of um, political disaster that, that Nixon supporters did, you know, religious supporters did in the 60s, and early 70s. And I, I worry about that. I, one of the things I say in the letter is that I think the brand, Christi Christianity's brand, for lack of a better word, is really damaged by this this moment in our history of such uncritical support for Trump. I don't, you know, as I say in the letter, I don't, I, I understand why people thought they couldn't vote for Hillary Clinton and they voted for Trump. And if they had held their nose and hoped for the best, you know, I could respect that. But people doubling down and doubling down and doubling down and just sort of, you know, being more and more determined to, to ride this out, I just think is a mistake. And I, I worry about, I worry about them and I worry about our country and I worry about our faith. Yeah. And that comes across really well in the letter. And I encourage anyone who's listening to this, check out this book. And, and specifically, that's my favorite part of the book is, is this letter because it's, yeah, you know, like I said, it, it's so balanced and it really, that, that was my favorite thing about it was that you were saying, you would say, I understand this about your position. I understand mm -hmm. this. I understand this. I understand this. And kind of like give them, give, you know, nowhere to run. Yeah. <laughs> Essentially, yeah. like, I, I acknowledge all of these things. I'm very empathetic. The interesting thing about 
I'm, you know, I'm reading through ethics right now. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that is so prominent in it is Bonhoeffer saying, know the will of God and do it. And, yeah. and specifically like pray, yeah. read your Bible. And in light of all of that, act according to your conscience. Right. Um, and it seems that, uh, Throughout the reception of Bonhoeffer, there has been this encouragement to, uh, for people to say, "Don't go with your conscience. Go with right. my conscience." Like, right. Specifically with taxes, it seems very yeah. prominent there to not go with your conscience. Vote for my guy. Yeah, I think that's uh, one of the things I would say about Metaxas is that he did is that he gave people permission, Christians permission, to ignore their sort of inner conscience, their inner sense that Trump was anathema. To everything they believed and and i think he still has done that and others like him have done that um so i think bonhoeffer does does speak to us you know there there are times when you've got to make decisions that your your friends and your co-religionists are not going to understand or not going to agree with but um you need to take seriously how god speaks definitely so I, I have a couple, well, really one question left for you. Um, basically, every episode, we, we, we're going to end this with a, um, a game of Desert Island. Hmm. Um, so if you're trapped on a desert island, this is the idea. You're trapped on a desert island. You get one book about Bonhoeffer and hmm. one book by Bonhoeffer. Hmm. What would you take with you? Wow. Um, one book by Bonhoeffer. I would probably take uh, Cost of Discipleship. You know, I read that. It was the first Bonhoeffer book I read. I don't think I've ever really understood it in all its richness. So that would give me some time to really get through that. <laughs> book about Bonhoeffer. You know, I think Baker's biography is just so rich. Um, I don't think I've ever really completely assimilated it. So maybe that one. There's so many good books. And the thing that's weird about I'll turn this into an attack on my taxes. Um, the thing that's weird about his his book is he, he he comes in in 2010, you know, 60 years or whatever after Bonhoeffer's death, and acts as if he's like he's the only person who's ever thought about Bonhoeffer's legacy. It turns out that there's quite a bit of disagreement. There's quite a bit of correction and um, you know new ideas and, and discussion in in the history of Bonhoeffer scholarship. It's a very rich community, and it's not at all monolithic. Um, and so. Uh, it's it's really there's so many books that one could choose that would sort of give um, a perspective a fresh perspective, perspective on Bonhoeffer that that you know makes him appear in a new way and that's one thing I love about being part of this community. Great, I haven't read that game, but I, I want to. Um, I know that it's. Uh, I, I hear it's it uh, so big. It's yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is. It's huge, but it's. Uh, you know, it's by somebody who actually knew him, and it's just, uh, it's certainly the starting place. And I think Metaxas started with the opinion that you could start over somehow. You didn't need to start with Baker. I don't know. Anyway, I'll just <laughs> yeah. let you decide whether to put that in or not. Oh, no, no, definitely. Um, we will keep that. Um, all right. Well, that'll that'll kind of wrap us up. Is there anything that you want to plug? Uh, I mean, I don't know if you're on social media, but you can, your books, anything like that, that you want to encourage people to to find you. Uh, I'm not really on social media, but you can find any of my books on Amazon. I've got an Amazon authors page, and um, so and people can reach me at you know my Rhodes uh, College email address if they want to converse. Great, awesome. Well, thank you so much just for your time. Really enjoyed the book again, and and uh, this has just been a really great conversation, and I really appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks for getting up so early. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> 
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Bonhoeffer Podcast. And, and thank you again to Dr. Ains for coming on. I just want to reiterate, if you are serious about learning more about Bonhoeffer, his newest book is an invaluable resource for understanding Bonhoeffer and the misunderstandings about him. If you are interested and want to know more or have any feedback at all, feel free to leave me a review on iTunes or reach out to me directly on Twitter at BonhoefferPod. I'm already having conversations with potential guests for the next two episodes, so we have a lot to look forward to. Thanks for listening.